I went to high school with uh, John S. Drew, who is currently the person running a network of podcasts called the Chronic Rift Network. The Chronic Rift originally was a public access show that me and John and some other friends of ours did in New York City. Uh, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm having technical difficulties. It looks like oh. things have not been recording like they should be. Oops. Uh, I can try to start over. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest tonight is an author of more than a dozen different Star Trek novels. He's also written Star Trek novellas, short stories, comic books, e-books, other novels uh, and tie-ins, including Spider-Man, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Farscape, Andromeda, World of Warcraft, Supernatural. Wow, the list goes on and on. I won't do a Gilbert and Gottfried and go into every detail of every single publication. He's also written uh, comic books and his own series, The Precinct Novels. He's an author from New York, Mr. Keith R. D- Keith DeCanado. Okay, let's try this again. Keith, <laughs> you grew up in New York. Yes. Only child, and yep. you were a nerd. And yes, both- and this was back in the 70s and 80s when that wasn't actually cool. So... Both your parents were librarians and sparked your interest in reading very early on. Yep, they they shoved a lot of um, lot of lot of books under my nose. Basically, when I when I was first able to read on my own, uh, they gave me a steady diet of uh, Tolkien, Le Guin, Heinlein, and P.G. Woodhouse uh, mm-hmm. to read. So I was pretty much corrupted for life right there. Yeah. So. I discovered. And also, it was it was with my parents watched Star Trek with me as a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, in New York City, there was an independent station, Channel Eleven. It's the CW affiliate now, but back then, uh, they used to do syndicated reruns of various shows. They had a block where they showed the Adam West Batman, the George Reeves Superman, and the Clayton Reeve Lone Ranger. And also every weeknight at six o'clock, they showed the original Star Trek, and that was that was our routine uh, every night. Uh, my mother and my parents would come home from work. I'd come home from school. And uh, we would sit down at six o'clock, and we would all watch Star Trek, and then then we'd have dinner. That was that was the nightly ritual. So I, that's that's how I grew up. I read comic books. I, when I got to high school, I started playing D and D. You know, I, I I did pretty much the entire nerd experience, uh, and that was duly mocked for it by by the more jock 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 types, and um, and that led me to the uh, weirdo you see before you today. Yeah, and. I should ask again uh, about when you first started writing. Uh, well, I first started writing when I was six. I wasn't very good at it because I was six. But, um, sure. Uh, I put together a little eight-page uh, thing on construction paper called Reflections in My Mirror. I still have it. I keep it around to keep me humble. Mm-hmm. And uh, the desire to write was always there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my parents read to me as a kid and then, and then had me reading stuff on my own eventually. And I always wanted to be to make stories of my own. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and with Star Trek in particular, I always wanted to write Star Trek stories also. Um, I read, I devoured the James Blish adaptations, uh, when I was younger. Yeah. And, uh, and then, uh, I started reading Star Trek novels, starting with, uh, the motion picture novelization that Gene Roddenberry did in 79, and continued reading Star Trek novels avidly after that. Um... Do you think so, um, Do you think Roddenberry actually wrote that, or was it? Oh, he absolutely wrote it. Okay. 
You know how I know he wrote it? Hmm. If somebody, if a ghostwriter had written it, it would have been better written. <laughs> um, it looking looking now, especially at the motion picture novelization with with a more professional eye as as somebody who's been both a writer and an editor professionally for for thirty years. Uh, it reads like something that was written by an inexperienced prose writer writing his first novel. Right, right. It's, there's a lot of, of infelicity, shall we say, and, and, and awkward phrasing and overwriting, really, in it. Uh, it's, yeah, no, I'm, I, I have every confidence that uh, Roddenberry wrote that himself. Yeah, I spoke recently with Suzanne Lambden uh, for this podcast about writing and how you can tell the difference between somebody who's used to prose and somebody who's used to script? Oh yeah. For that matter, when I was when I was work, um, when I when I got out of college, uh, I knew I couldn't make a living as a writer, and I worked as an editor for my for one of my college papers. It was just called the paper at Fordham University, and I got a job as an editor, uh, working first for a magazine and then later for a book packager. And when I was working for the book packager. I actually edited a bunch of novels and short story collections based on Marvel Comics. And um, we actually had a very extensive uh, Marvel Novels program. It was published, uh, it was jointly published by us and the uh, Putnam Berkeley group from 1994 to 2000. And I got to publish a lot of prose by comics writers, particularly in the short story collections. We would get short stories from guys who, who wrote for the comics. Uh, and it was interesting to me because a lot of them didn't have much experience in prose. And so they all made a lot of the same mistakes. A lot of them didn't understand internal point of view. A lot of them uh, struggled with... Um, and, and a lot of them, because comic books tend to... Especially uh, back then, uh, everybody... there was Every sentence ended in an exclamation point because that was a fairly common uh, trope in comics. Right. The newsprint days, because you couldn't see a period. Right. So, so everybody's shouting. You know? yeah. um, and in prose, it basically makes everybody sound like they're being played by DeForest Kelly. You know, everybody's shouting their lungs out. Um, yeah. And and character voices were were not always differentiated either. Right. So uh, yeah, it was it was that was that was an interesting experience. It's it's not always easy to make the transition. Some do it. I've I, you know I've written comics and I've and I've also written prose. But I look back at my first uh, my first time doing comic books, which was actually a Star Trek comic in 1999, yeah. and uh, it's the reverse problem. I, I overwrote it considerably right. uh, I didn't really give the artist a chance to breathe and um, I'm, I'm better at it now but uh, yeah of course back in the day when comics were started up the word flick was banned from comics yes because yes. Of the poor quality of the printing press and the paper there were yes. fears that the L and the I would blend together into the letter U and kids would get a shock that they weren't prepared for or yes. at least that parents thought they wouldn't be prepared. Yeah, or a shock their parents weren't prepared for, I think, would be more accurate. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. So tell us about the Chronic Rift and how that got started. Uh, that was – now it's a, it's a network of podcasts um, that is run by my, my old high school buddy, John Drew. Back in the early 90s, when, when both of us uh, had just uh, finished college, John was interested in getting into TV production. That never actually happened, but um, – he thought one way to get himself some experience producing and directing was to do stuff on public access uh, in, uh, here in New York. And so he hit on the idea of doing a talk show. And um, initially, for the first, like, five episodes, it was just us and our friends. 
you know, we, we, we set up, we did a, we had a new segment, uh, a review segment, and then a, what we called the roundtable discussion, which is about a 15 to 20 minute discussion of some topic or other. Um, and around the sixth episode, we started dragging in some actual professionals into it. Um, there were there were two professional contacts that we had. One I had was a, a book editor who um, I had met through my parents at a wedding they had gone to uh, because there was a uh, they were this editor uh, was next door neighbors to one of my mother's old college buddies, so they got to meet at the wedding. So I knew him, and then he introduced me to some other people, including Susan, the author Susan Schwartz, who was who was on uh, an episode of the show, and. Uh, John had actually submitted some stuff and started a correspondence with uh, Robert Greenberger at DC Comics, who was the Star Trek comics editor at the time. And through Bob, uh, we were able to get talk, get in touch with David Stern. So we had the two of them on a discussion of Star Trek, and then and it just kept snowballing from there. Uh, you know, one person introduced us to another person, to another person, and, and we started developing this huge network of contacts, and we wound up getting. Uh, a lot of professionals on the show as well. And it just blossomed. You know, we didn't anticipate doing more than maybe, you know, 10 episodes at best. We wound up doing 100 episodes of the show. We did interviews. We had uh, several review segments. Uh, we covered a lot of different topics uh, from all over the, the geeky spectrum. Uh, books, TV shows, movies, comic books, anime, whatever. Um, uh, gaming. And, uh, and it was great. We... Uh, we had a wonderful time with it. It lasted, like I said, 100 episodes, about four years. And then at, at that point, it was just, it, we were getting burned out on it. You know? Right. Um, yeah, we were doing this out of our own pockets. We had some sponsorship money, which which kept the cost down, but those were starting to uh, trail off. And it just, it, it was getting to be too much. We were all, you know, we started out when we were 21, and then as we were getting into our 20s, you know, other life commitments kept getting annoying. Right. But uh, And then in 2008, by that time, podcasts had pretty much become a thing. And, uh, and we thought it would be good to revive it as a podcast. Uh, there's less physical commitment. By doing it audio only, we didn't have to be in the same place at the same time. We could do it over Skype. We could do it, uh, you know, over whatever version we use, whatever. It, and it, it, was, uh, it was much easier to manage. And so, you know, we've been doing it on and off for those 10 years. So. Right, right. Was that the only um, such program uh, going on at the time? Do you know, were the other? Um, no, there there were some others. Uh, there was a thing up in Toronto called Prisoners of Gravity. Um, there's one in DC that's still going actually. Now they do them on uh, on YouTube uh, called Fast Forward. Um, and we we'd been in touch with both of them. And there may have been some other local ones floating around that we didn't know about. And then uh, so. Yeah, so there were there were a few others here and there. I, okay. I, yeah, I'm sure we weren't the only one. And like I said, those two were the ones we knew about because we we got in touch with each other, and uh, it was fun. It was and and it, and it proved, actually uh, for me especially it proved useful because one of the people we had on the show wound up hiring me uh, to work for Byron Price, so uh, that actually wound up being good for my career too. So yeah, I'm remembering Ian McKellen hosted Saturday Night Live and they did a sketch of a cable access comic book type show. And I was like, I wonder if that was inspired by what you guys were doing or not. I doubt it. But like I said, I, I'm, I know we weren't the only ones doing it. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you get writing, officially writing Star Trek then? Uh, it actually, um, one of the people I met through the chronic rifts, uh, sort of through a friend of a friend was John Ordover when he was editing an editor at Tor Books. Uh, we had had Greg Cox on the show, 
And then uh, I met, through Greg, I met John. They were both associate editors at Tor at the time. This is in, like, 1990, uh, right after we started up the show. And uh, we remained friends. John moved over to Simon & Schuster and became one of the Star Trek editors. He hired me here to do a couple of bits and pieces here and there, like some cover copy and some research and some other stuff. He didn't actually invite me to pitch a Star Trek novel to him, even though he knew I wanted to write one, until I had already established myself as a novelist elsewhere. Hmm. By the time he said, came to me in 1999 and said, hey, want to pitch me a Star Trek novel? I'd already had uh, three novels published with two more on the way that I'd already written and they just weren't out yet. So he basically said, go ahead and pitch me something. Because uh, he liked what I'd done in the the books I'd already written, and uh, yeah. I pitched it, he rejected, it. <laughs> and then, uh, re- but as he rejected it, he also came back to me. He had just gotten in the script for What You Leave Behind, which was the final Deep Space Nine episode. In and he told me that it ended with Worf going off to become the Federation ambassador to the Klingon Empire. Mm-hmm. And how would I like to write Worf's first mission in that role? And I oh. said, sure. So we worked out a plot. And uh, and then we uh, that became diplomatic implausibility, which mm-hmm. came out in two thousand one. And then uh, in two thousand, uh, John and I created the Starfleet Corps of Engineers series, uh, which was developed actually because Microsoft had uh, was launching their new e-reader. Uh, this was back this was back in the in the pre-Kindle days mm-hmm. when uh, you had to read e-books on your computer and. Um, People would uh, Microsoft debuted new software that was uh, easy to read ebooks on, and they wanted to launch an exclusive uh, Star Trek series to go with it. And so John and I created the Corps of Engineers, mm-hmm. and uh, I wound up editing that monthly series uh, on a freelance basis for them, and writing several books in the series as well. And Marco Palmieri approached me to do something for the new DS9 novels he was developing, and it all just sort of snowballed. From um, are those uh, ebooks uh, available in print elsewhere, or at least Kindle these days? Uh, oh yeah, no, they're all available in in in, in the various and sundry ebook formats. Uh, as far as print versions, the first we did we did uh, seventy two, I think, uh, ebooks novellas in in the Corps of Engineers series, and we did two other miniseries, uh, an original series one called Mirror Anarchy and a Next Generation one called uh, Slings and Arrows. The final eight Corps of Engineers stories. And the Slings and Arrows miniseries were never collected uh, for reasons I couldn't possibly explain. Uh, I I'm I haven't been in the loop at Simon and Schuster for almost ten years now. Um, there was a change in editors, and and the new editorial regime has not expressed any interest in working with me uh, for reasons known only to them. So I don't know why they haven't been reprinted. Uh, however, the first sixty-six Corps of Engineers series were all uh, collected into omnibuses. And Mirror Anarchy was also collected into an omnibus as well. So um, Mirror Anarchy was the original series. We did that for uh, the original series' uh, 10th anniversary in uh, – 40th anniversary, rather, in 2006. And uh, it was – and then that that was put out in uh, collected form as well. I see. I was going to ask, of course, uh, we had mentioned before before I realized that we were having recording problems. But you mentioned – well, I had mentioned the – animated series and the power of records and you mentioned uh, making reference to 
uh, the Power of Records in one of your books. Yeah, well, I, in, uh, I, I still have, actually, the um, one of the Power Records uh, – no, two, actually, two of them. Uh, but what I have is uh, – one of the ones I have that I made reference to in one of my books was um, called The Crier in Emptiness. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a musical instrument in that one that uh, that I made reference to and, and had play a role – a small role in my novel A Singular Destiny. Um, it was called uh, an Elysiar, I believe. Uh, big, big, massive keyboard-like object. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I worked that in there uh, as a sort of tribute to the Power Records. Well, it makes me want to ask about how much the other Star Trek novels that you read over the years. How much have you worked into the books of it, uh, from them? From other novels? Yeah. Um, bits and pieces here and there. Um. In the Corps of Engineers series, I actually worked with one author uh, to bring in a Belandrid, which is a, a really adorable little species that Carolyn Close created for the Pandora Principle, which was her uh, Savic origin novel. And uh, Belandrid is supposed to be natural engineers, so we thought it was a perfect fit. Uh, it was Terry Osborne who worked one into her novella Progress. And then I later brought that character back in, another, in A Singular Destiny also. I've tried to, you know... Uh, make references where possible. Um, there's uh, I've used bits that Diane Duane inco- uh, established about the Romulans where possible uh, here and there. I've used I've in in my Klingon fiction I've tried to use stuff where practical from um, Final uh, John Re- M- Final Reflection. Yeah, um, including a, a subplot with um, Battlecruiser Vengeance, which was the the uh, basically the, the, the equivalent of the Star Trek TV show in the Klingon Empire, which, uh, that was fun, working that in there. So yeah, I try, I try to bring stuff in where I can, just as little Easter eggs, because it's fun, and, and people, and, you know, I, I try to make the references as unobtrusive as possible, you know, so if you don't know that it's a reference to a previous book, it doesn't like, you, you don't feel like you're being left out. Uh, that's always important to me. But, uh, uh, you know, but I also do the same thing with you know bits of continuity from the show as well. You know, the Star Trek has a huge history, oh, yes. um, and I try, I like to take advantage of it where possible and and try to make everything fit where possible as well. Right, right. And you, uh, so do you try to keep continuity with the novels that had gone before or after or where where practical? Yes, I mean after two thousand one, there was a conscious effort to keep at least the twenty fourth century fiction consistent with each other. That was when we launched the the post-finale Deep Space Nine novels. Right. And that that in particular was when that, that trend started. Um, so, you know, all, all, a lot of the stuff that's been done since then has consciously been in continuity with each other. But even, even you know, in other, in other cases, it, I, I try to, like I said, we're practical to be consistent. They weren't all consistent with each other, so it doesn't always work. Uh, and sometimes, you know, I wind up having an idea that where I can't do it, I can't be consistent for the story's sake, but that that's just, you, you roll with it. Right. I, I don't stress too much about what's real in a fictional construct, which is why canon arguments always make my teeth hurt, mm-hmm. but um, uh, it's fun to be at least as consistent as possible. So. I managed to avoid a canon discussion with Dayton the other night when he was on. <laughs> uh, I could tell you, for my own personal uh, uh, consideration, uh, I'm told that the only canon out there is what was on the shows. Yeah. And I say, well, if it's in a book and it does not contradict in any way what's in the shows, then go ahead and accept it for myself. 
let's just say, like I said, I don't stress about what's real in a fictional construct. The only thing, the only person, the only people to whom canon matters is the people writing in the universe, and basically, canon is what they need to be consistent with. And that's it. it. It's completely irrelevant to the people reading it or watching it or consuming it in whatever way. You know, it's not like we're talking about Holy Writ here and we're not talking about, you know, historical documents. This isn't Galaxy Quest. Um, you know, the, the, it's, it's, the, it, it's not worth stressing over any more than it's worth stress. I mean, you know what else isn't canon? The entire Marvel Cinematic Universe is not canon. Right. Um, and that doesn't seem to stop people from seeing the movies. So, you know, it's it's not that big a deal. As far as I'm concerned, the um, Star Trek X-Men crossovers are canon. <laughs> and no one's going to argue me against that. I actually worked as a consulting editor on the novel that Mike Friedman wrote. Mm-hmm. Because at the time, I was, ed- I, like I said, I was editing uh, Marvel Comics prose fiction at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so John asked me to just give it a read-through. Uh, because I knew the X-Men better than he did, basically, and had been editing X-Men novels for uh, for Byron Price. And so we, uh, so I got to, to help work on that. That was a really interesting project, because when you're doing licensed fiction, everything you do has to be approved by the people who own it. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know when I write, or when anybody writes a Star Trek novel, you have, to, you have to write out the plot outline, and then somebody at CBS has to approve it. Uh, currently, that's a, a gentleman named John Van Sitters, who is a wonderful guy uh, in CBS licensing. And he's he's the guy who approves all this stuff. For the Star Trek X-Men crossover, it had to be approved both by CBS licensing, and back then it was uh, John's predecessor, Paula, Paula Block, and, and Marvel Creative Services, which was the licensing group at the time. And uh, basically, you got to get it approved by two different corporations and, and two different sets of people, which is a much bigger challenge oh, yeah. than just that one person doing. Yeah, in my mind, the X-Men did meet the crew of both Enterprise uh, A and, well, the original series crew, as well as the Enterprise D, as yes. well as the Teen Titans, as well as the Micronauts. And Doctor Who. And Doctor Who, but that's beside the point. Yeah. Um, at this point in the proceedings, I would be obliged to take a break for a word from our sponsor, Listeners at this point should realize that as yet I don't have any sponsors, <laughs> but hopefully one day I'll get them because sponsorship would mean being able to afford upgrades in recording equipment and travel costs so I can get to different conventions around the country and meet more guests that could be potential uh, guests on the show. Uh, so I'm going to instead insert at this point a classic commercial from the past that has some sort of Star Trek connection. I'm seriously tempted to throw in a Pizza Hut advert I came across that's done entirely Klingon, but (laughs) because it's all audio and you have no idea what the advert would be for, it would just be uh, unintelligible gibberish to 90%, I think, of my listeners. But I'll figure something out. Trade you my narrow glass for a hura. Not in a million light years. Kingons. I think he wants your BK Star Trek glass. No way, it's a collector's item. <laughs> the Kingon nipple pinch. Take it, take it. No. Ah, ah, here. 
They took Ohura. They took my nipples. Star Trek movie glasses. One ninety nine each with any BK value meal. Collect them all before the Kingons do. Okay, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your host again, Steve Atwell, and I'm still here with Mr. Keith DeCandido, all the way from New York City, somewhere, I believe, in the Bronx. The Bronx, am I right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I spent the summer in 95 in New York, and I was living on the Upper West Side and working at a pizza place down by the village. So I <laughs> still know something about the geography there, but I haven't been back in 23 years. I actually lived on the Upper West Side for a while. Yeah. When I was married the first time. Mm. So. so I was going to want to ask you about the Klingon books, Captain Clagg and that whole series, and how that got started. Uh, that actually got started in Diplomatic Implausibility, my first uh, my first Trek novel. Uh, I needed a Klingon crew uh, for Worf to interact with, and um, I always liked Clagg from a matter of honor. I thought he was a really interesting character. That was the epi- that was the Next Generation episode where Riker served as first officer aboard a Klingon ship. Clagg was his second officer, and um, I, uh, Brian Thompson played him on the show, and I thought he was I thought he was really interesting and really well done, and and I wanted to know more about him. So I wrote him, <laughs> and uh, I brought in a bunch of other characters from other uh, uh, guest guest appearances on various TV shows, and uh, I figured you know it would be a fun thing to do is to just you know show us a, a Klingon starship and 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 the crew of that, yeah. and that was fun. And then this was at a time when when uh, Simon and Schuster was doing a lot of different ancillary series. Beside, uh, New Frontier had debuted in 1997, and it was a huge hit. And they were doing other things that weren't tied directly to one of the, at the time, four TV shows. And uh, so th- there were things like the Stargazer series and the, the uh, later the Titan series and the Vanguard series and the Corps of Engineers and, and such like. And I was, John gave me the go-ahead to try doing a Gorkon series, since I'd already set up the crew. And so in 2003, we did uh, the first two IKS Gorkon books, uh, A Good Day to Die and Honor Bound. They did fairly well. Um, and so John signed me up to do a third book that came out in 2005 called Enemy Territory, and it did not do well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and after that, we weren't sure what to do with it. So uh, by that time, uh, John had, had left Simon & Schuster and then uh, Marco Palmieri had taken over that series. And he and I worked out the rebranding of it as uh, under the title of Klingon Empire mm-hmm. to see if that would draw up more interest. And we did a book called The Burning House, which was at once a, a first book of a new series and also the fourth IKS Gorkon book. It was a good jumping on point. And I also tried to wrap up as many storylines that I'd been running through the previous books as possible, just in case it didn't work out and this is the last book, which is in fact what happened. Uh, it did better than enemy territory, but it didn't do well enough to justify doing it anymore, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Uh, but uh, I was able to bring Clag and the gang back in A Singular Destiny um, as supporting characters, and uh, he's still out there and could theoretically come back if anybody's interested, so we'll yeah. see. Yeah, yeah, I've got all those books here, as you know, because we met and you signed them for me <laughs> ever so much. Are you still working with... Working, writing Star Trek uh, material to, at this point in time? No, I haven't in, in almost 10 years now. Um, when, when Marco Palmieri was laid off at the end of 2008, uh, my phone stopped ringing. I, I, to this day, have no idea why um, I've been kind of 
not not been approached about any Trek fiction. Um, I've had plenty of other things to keep me busy, but um, but for whatever reason, uh, the current editorial regime has not evinced any interest in hiring me, which happens. Every time there's an editorial turnover, there are some writers who suddenly find themselves out of work. Um, it happens. Uh, so, yeah. Well, so, I- no. The only, the only Trek work I've done since then, mm-hmm. uh, in, in the fictional realm has been The Klingon Art of War, which was a coffee table book that uh, was actually produced by a book packager out in Seattle called Becker and Meyer. It wound up being published by Simon & Schuster, but they weren't the ones who hired me. It was it was the book packager who did it, and then Simon & Schuster uh, picked up the rights to do it later. But that was uh, sort of a... a I, I, it's a guide... It's, it's presented as a book that was published in the Klingon Empire about a thousand years ago. This is a new edition of the book that has modern commentary in the 24th century by a Klingon writer, and it's kind of a, a, a ten precepts on how to live your life as a proper warrior. It's a kind of violent self-help book. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a lot of fun. It's, uh, I, had a good, I had a lot of fun doing it. It was, it was very well received, uh, and, uh, and that was fun to do. Aside, that's, that's been it, though, uh, lately. The, I have been doing, I've been writing about Star Trek for Tor.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a pop culture website. From 2011 to 2017, I did rewatches of detailed rewatches of each episode of The Next Generation and then Deep Space Nine and then the original series, where I would you know watch an episode, write in depth about it, you know, uh, recapping it and talking about different elements of it, and then write, and writing a detailed review of it. And uh, I covered, like I said, both both those two spinoffs as well as the original series. And with the original series, it included. Uh, the animated series and all ten movies featuring Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and the gang, and um, and I've also been reviewing Star Trek Discovery for Tor.com. Those I've been reviewing those episodes as they come out. Hmm. So, um, so that's well, been fun. Well, I for one am very disappointed because not only did I thoroughly enjoy the Clag books, but I have been making a name for myself in the Star Trek fan film world as Crowrath of the Klingon. And I was hoping I could try to convince you to write me into one. Um, I'll think. You never know. So, um, with the Art of War, did you read um, Mark Ogran's um, The Way of the Warrior? Oh, yeah. I, well, I read it plenty of times already, but yeah. And did you listen to his audio books of how to speak Klingon? Uh, some of them, yeah. 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 Okay, because I figure, you know, anybody that's going to write anything Klingon should be as well steeped in everything Klingon that you can get a hold of. Yeah, oh yeah. Well, so what are you working on these days? Oh, quite a bit. Um, there's my my Precinct series, which is a series of fantasy police procedurals, kind of Law and Order meets Lord of the Rings. The The first book was called Dragon Precinct. It was, a, it was originally published as a mass market paper back in 2004. And then the imprint that it was a part of was discontinued. Uh, so I wasn't able to keep it going until 2011 when uh, a small press publisher uh, picked it up. And uh, they published it for a while. And then the, the publisher kind of uh, stopped happening. <laughs> the, the small presses are very volatile. Uh, and they're generally only run by one or two people. And if that one person has a life crisis or something, then, then um, the, the, the publisher kind of uh, stops happening. 
So it's moved over. It's now been taken over by Eastbeck Books, another small press publisher. Uh, and they just reprinted the extant uh, five books in the series, which is four novels and one short story collection. I am currently working on the fifth novel in the series, which is called Mermaid Precinct. The, uh, the previous uh, books were Dragon Precinct, Unicorn Precinct, Goblin Precinct, and Griffin Precinct. Uh, Mermaid will be out later this year. And I'm also under contract to do two more novels after that and one more short story collection. I'm putting the finishing touches on an urban fantasy novel called A Furnace Sealed, which is actually uh, takes place right here in my native Bronx. Uh, it uh, features a, a, a guy who hunts monsters. Mm-hmm. And I'm uh, hoping that'll be out this year from Wordfire Press. Uh, I've got two tie-in projects that I can't actually talk about yet. Uh, one is... Um, uh, serialized uh, fiction I'll be doing that ties into a game, mm-hmm. and the other is uh, based on a, a a fairly well-known franchise. Uh, it's a novel. And uh, can you say television or film? I, I no. <laughs> uh, I, I I really can't say what it is, but suffice it to say, it's going to be really cool, and I'm hoping to be able to announce it soon. And I'm working on a bunch of other things as well. Uh, I'm I'm currently on Patreon, where that's become a source for a lot of um, not only um, uh, excerpt, you can see excerpts from my upcoming work and, and I've been writing little vignettes every month featuring my original characters and um, I'm also uh, uh, writing review, TV and movie reviews for Patreon as well um, oh and also posting cat pictures and uh, those wow. seem to be very popular. We have very we have two very photogenic cats <laughs> I understand. My cats are fairly photogenic as well, but I'm not as obsessed with sharing that with the world as others seem to be. Not to say there's anything bad about people who pat, post cat pictures. I just don't see. I just don't. They're cats. What the hell? <laughs> I'm looking through the research. You wrote a Stargate SG-1 tie-in novel. Yes, it was called uh, Kali's Raff. Came out a couple of years ago. That was fun. I've, I've been a Stargate SG-1 fan for ages, and that was it was really tremendous fun to be able to write in that universe. Is there any possibility that you'd be able to, that you'd be writing any more of those? It's possible. Um, I've done. I've also done two short stories uh, in that setting. Oh, no, I'd like to. I don't. I don't know. I don't know how well Cully's Wrath did. First of all, one way or the other. Also, the the Stargate uh, novels have been coming have not been coming out consistently due to issues that have to do with MGM and and their various problems. So I don't know. Uh, I don't know if there'll be more with them. Uh, I I'd, I'd love to. Right now I don't have time. <laughs> but uh, but in theory I'd love I'd love to do more in that world. We'll see. Okay, because I have friends who are absolutely huge Stargate fans. Yeah. And um, I'm probably going to have to go out and buy these books for them now. <laughs> I guess we'll just move on to the trivia quiz, if you don't mind. Oh, dear God. Okay, sure. <laughs> okay, this is Steve's tough, though not really tough, Star Trek trivia questions. <laughs> It'll be a series of five questions. If you get three of them correct, you will win. There'll be a chance to impress your friends with your trivial knowledge or embarrass your children. If you get all five correct, there'll be a sixth question for Double or Nothing Stakes. Are you ready? Uh, well, I don't have any children, but okay, sure. <sighs> okay, question one. Before, this is just silliness and vanity on my part. Don't take it. <laughs> Before being cast as Dr. Crusher, Dr. Beverly Crusher on Star Trek's Next Generation, 
Gates McFadden was a well-known Hollywood choreographer who worked frequently with Jim Henson and the Muppets. Among her credits is the choreography for the 1986 fantasy musical Labyrinth, which pop culture musical icon, also known as a star man, was a star of Labyrinth. That would be David Bowie. That's correct, for one. Question two. Bernie Casey appeared in the two-part Deep Space Nine episode, The Maquis, as Lieutenant Commander Cal Hudson. Earlier in his career, he'd co-starred in the 1976 science fiction movie, The Man Who Fell to Earth. What pop culture musical icon, also known as Starman, was the star of The Man Who Fell to Earth? Oh, God. Was that also Bowie? That's correct, David Bowie. Question three. The Ethiopian, Ethiopian model, Iman, appeared in the Star Trek VI Undiscovered Country as the Kamaloid Martia. What pop culture musical icon known as Starman was married to Iman? Wait, let me think. Uh, David Bowie. Yes, that's four for four. It's incredible. That's actually only three, but yes. Is that only three? I'm sorry, my part. Iggy Pop appeared in the, 19, <laughs> in the Deep Space Nine episode The Magnificent Frankie. As the Vorta Yogren, before embarking on his acting career, Iggy was a well-known musician who, during the 70s and 80s, collected, collaborated on 11 albums with what pop culture musical icon, also known as Starman? Um, uh, wait, it's on the tip of my tongue. Um, David Bowie. Yes. Question five, then. Academy yeah, it's, I, it's fascinating to me because I, I never really realized how many connections to Star Trek that he had. Keep going, yes. <laughs> Question five. Academy and Emmy Award-winning singer, songwriter, musician, actor Paul Williams appeared in the Voyager episode Virtuoso as Komar, the Koru, the as the, excuse me, as the Komar Koru. Among his many musical compositions was a song titled Feel Your Heart, which pop culture musical icon, also known as Starman, recorded a version of this song for his 1971 album, Hunky Dory? David Bowie. That one I didn't know, but well, as a guess, I'll say David Bowie. Absolutely correct. Yes. For the sixth and final question, Double or Nothing Stakes, what pop culture musical icon, also known as Starman, <laughs> never actually appeared on Star Trek himself, but probably should have? Mick Jagger! No, uh, David Bowie. Is that your final answer? Yes. Oh, uh, no, we were looking for Paul Stanley, the star man from Kiss. Damn it! Uh, <laughs> no, wait, wait. The judges are in my ear. They'll give it to you, David Bowie. <laughs> okay, if I, can think, I can't think of any more questions at this point. Um, You got anything of interest that you want to discuss? Well, this may be the first um, interview I've done on a Star Trek podcast where I didn't talk about articles of the Federation, so that's impressive. You want to talk about it? I I always want to talk about it, but uh, it's 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 one of the things I'm proudest of uh, as a Star Trek writer. Um, it's it's for for all of the 52 years now that there has been Star Trek, we have gotten in-depth looks at so many other governments, mm -hmm. especially the Klingon government, the Romulan government, the Cardassian government, the Bajoran government. Vulcans to a degree on Enterprise. And, I'm sorry? Vulcans to a degree on Enterprise. What? Yeah, but, um, but 
but the Enterprise couldn't have shown us the Federation government because the Federation didn't exist yet. Right. Um, so That's they're right. actually they're off the hook. But all the other no, I, I said I said the Vulcans. No, no, I know. But yeah. my point is, we never saw the Federation government. Enterprise couldn't have shown us the Federation government because the Federation didn't exist yet. Right. Um, so, like I said, they're off the hook. But the other. The other uh, aspects of the franchise all take place after the start. The Federation was formed, and um, the but, and we never really, aside from three cameos really by a Federation president and mentions of a Federation council, we never really saw the Federation government hardly at all. We still haven't. I mean, I'm, I'm I would be thrilled if Discovery at some point addresses this, but mm-hmm. I doubt they will. But they. I thought it was long past time we got an in-depth look at it. So I did this novel, which was basically a Star Trek version of the West Wing, more or less. <laughs> and I had already created the character of Nan Baco, who had just won uh, election to the presidency of the Federation mm-hmm. in uh, my Next Generation novel, A Time for War, A Time for Peace. And I wanted, you know, we, 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 were, we then did a novel that featured her first year in office, which was also the first year following Star Trek Nemesis, which means, among other things, she had to deal with uh, the fallout from what happened in the Romulan Empire. Since in Nemesis, the entire Romulan Senate was turned to pixie dust, and then the guy who turned them into pixie dust got blown up. So things were a bit chaotic there. And that's just one of the many, 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 many different things that she has to deal with. And I figured that... You know, she'd appear in that novel, maybe get mentioned once or twice as a sort of token thing. She wound up becoming this massively prolific supporting character in over a dozen novels, mm-hmm. and which was a thrill to me because I created her as a tribute to my great grandmother, and who uh, my great grandmother was 98 years old when she died in 2003, mm-hmm. and it was shortly after that that I wrote a Time for a Time for Peace, and and I created uh, President Baco as. Uh, in part a tribute to her and so uh, seeing her become this major character was just awesome to me and so that was that was really great and um, and it all you know more or less started with those two novels I wrote so uh, so that was fun and and I, I love the character and and I'm really thrilled that she became this major part of the of the Star Trek literary universe as it were and and they and people have continued to use the template for how I established the Federation government, where I tried to make it a mix of the uh, the democrat of a democratic republic, a democratic republic akin to the United States, as well as the more parliamentary style of the UK and Canada, mm-hmm. um, and other parts of Europe, uh, and it, it it seems to have worked for people. So I enjoy the subplot about the Comaloid. <laughs> Yes. Have you watched any of the Star Trek fan films, and what do you think of those? I've seen a bunch of them because I've actually been a judge um, for the awards. Uh, the the down at uh, the Treklana convention down in Atlanta every spring, they present. They've been presenting for the last several years the Bejos, which are uh, awards in Star Trek fan film for Star Trek fan films rather. And uh, so I've been a judge each of the last several years. So I've gotten to see a whole bunch of them, and uh, they're fun. They're sure. uh, you know, obviously, some are better than others, but that's true of any group of productions. Um, uh, one thing that shines through in all of them is is the enthusiasm, which is which is is you know everybody there obviously loves what they're doing, um, and and is enjoying you know 
doing stuff in this universe that we all love. So right. it's fun. So were you there uh, this year? I wasn't actually at the convention. I did. I did. Uh, you know, I, I was still a judge. Most most of the judges don't actually attend the convention as it happens. Oh, uh, it's from a variety of people who've been in, who have been involved with Star Trek in some form or other. Um, and it's been a different set of judges every year. So you pro- you're hoping probably- to get back to Atlanta next year. I've been I haven't been there the last couple of years, but. Uh, so you probably did see the films that I was in. That's yeah. cool. If not, I could send you links. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, have you thought about? Uh, I know. The rules are, if you've done any official Star Trek, that you cannot write for any of the fan films. I'm not sure if that covers the books or just the television series. I, it's not something I, I have really had much interest in doing one way or the other. I, I, I'm, I'm not a screenwriter, for one thing. Um, so I, it's not really a mode I'm, I'm as comfortable in, so it, you know, it's probably not likely to happen, but who knows. Right. But uh, if a fan filmmaker wanted to adapt one of your stories, of course you wouldn't have this go on the say so on that. They would have to go to the original publisher or whoever holds the rights these days. Well, it's it's all ever, all of it's owned by CBS. I mean that's uh-huh. that's you know that that's true. I mean that'd be true if if um if they wanted to do you know an episode of Discovery or a movie that adapted one of my books as well. They wouldn't need my permission. They already own it. Right. Um, so, yeah. Right. Okay, well, so, to recap, you're from the Bronx. You went to Fordham. <laughs> you grew up a nerd. You hosted your own um, cable access... Uh, I was one of the hosts, yeah. yeah were, co- co-hosted. Cool. It was, I was first with Judy Fenari and then later with Andrea Lipinski. And you have written numerous Star Trek books ebooks and uh, other tie-in novels, comic books. Oh, how did you get involved writing a Star Trek comic books? Uh, that was a case of um, Wildstorm had just picked up the license, and um, the editor was Jeff Marriott, with whom I'd worked before. I'd, I'd edited uh, a Gen 13 novel he'd written, and he knew I was... He was he, one of the places he was uh, getting writers from were people who had written Star Trek novels, well, well, my first novel hadn't been published yet. I was already under contract to do uh, my first novel, and Jeff was familiar with my work because we'd worked together uh, on the Gen 13 novel, so he gave me the opportunity to pitch. Uh, and mine was actually the first one to be approved of uh, from their license. So. Well, have you, um, jumping around, have you consulted or have you met um, Ron Moore, who wrote so many of the Klingon-centric episodes oh, yeah. of the next gen? Yeah, we we've been at the same convention a couple of times. I wonder what he thinks of your work, if anything. I don't know that he's read it. Um, he certainly hadn't as of the first time I met him. Um, I mean, he was he knew it existed, but um, yeah. And I know you have met Brian Thompson, and he's. I have met Brian Thompson, and I actually gave him a copy of um, the Brave and the Bold book too, which had the not only had the Klingon uh, Clag in it, but Clag's on the cover. So. Uh, okay. Well, I guess I'll go ahead and wind things down. Uh, thank you so much for your time. My guest this evening has again been Keith DeCandido. DeCandido! DeCandido, <laughs> I love you so. Keith DeCandido. I want to thank him very much for his time. And I also want to send out thanks to Adam Mullen, who composed our theme song. 
and also help me figure out how to do the technical end of putting a podcast together. Adam co-hosts, along with Bill Allen, a podcast here on the Trexphere Network called The Final Frontier, which focuses on fan productions, film, and otherwise. Thanks also go to James Hams, who's in charge of Trexphere, for allowing me to post this podcast on that platform. The Omega Directive is also available on iTunes, and if you like what you see or, or what, if you like what you've heard, please subscribe, give us a positive rating, leave a positive review. If you'd like to contact me with my any comments, questions, or concerns, the Omega Directive avail- is available on Facebook as well as Twitter. Otherwise, Keith, please plug yourself. Uh, you can the best place to find out information about me is to go to decandido.net. That's D-E-C-A-N-D-I-D-O dot net, which is a link dump, basically, for all the most efficient ways to cyberstalk me. Uh, That links to my blog, which I update fairly regularly, as well as my Facebook page, my Twitter feed, uh, my Instagram account, my Wikipedia page. Uh, It links to Tor.com, where I write regularly, and also my Patreon, where I write and and contribute regularly uh, to my patrons. So um, that's, that's the best place to start. Um, is to go there. Uh, I update things on, on my blog and on Facebook and Twitter pretty regularly, uh, and you can keep up with all my doings and ramblings and stuff. Uh, there's also uh, my, my work is all available on, from all the usual online dealers, from Amazon, from Barnes & Noble, from Kobo, and other places. Um, so, yeah. Okay. That's the best way to find me. Okay. Thanks again. And that's it for this week's show. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for tuning in. And please, 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 for goodness sakes, don't take any wooden quatloos. Bye-bye. Thanks, Keith. Thanks, Steve. Bye. Take care.